Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, letter number 26, or map number 26, rather. Map number 26 is entitled, Finding the Real in a Post-Truth World, or What Stephen Hawking Saw. So you were skiing in the Alps, traipsing around Europe, and you read this big, dense book, and you're thinking about consciousness and what is really real. So what is really real, and does it include professional wrestling? (laughs) That must be a rhetorical question, because of course it does. Macho Man, Randy uh, Savage. I, I, that was my favorite, that I, guy's voice. I just loved him. I grew up on Hulk Hogan. My God. Hulk Hogan was amazing. He was amazing. And, you know, I was, uh, you know, I was at an age where I didn't quite know what was real, right? Surely wrestling was, was real. It was, and I mean, and nobody would do that just for, you know, my entertainment, right? They, they must actually have, you know, deep, deep angers and, and, and rivalries. And, you know, why else would you hit somebody over the head with a chair? And, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. These are deep thoughts. Deep, yeah. Professional wrestling, man. And then look, who would have ever thought Andre the Giant would be in the Princess Bride? I mean, you know. Oh, he was good in that role. He was good in that role. So basically, this book is, you call it, uh, uh, like you said, you mentioned it's like an autopsy of the mind or consciousness. This book you just called The Ever Present Origin. Yeah, some light reading while I was skiing in the Alps. That's, uh, you know, in hindsight, yeah, I should have found the Kindle version because when you're traveling heavy books, like anything over 600 pages, get the Kindle edition, I think, if you're traveling, if you're traveling. Although, you know, this was also one of those books where, you know, sometimes you're dealing with an author who has very complicated, like, like big mental constructs and you almost need the pen and the highlighter and the kind of random access that, that the physical book gives you just because, you know, you kind of these big ideas, you got to kind of flip back and forth until you can sort of make your own, make your own sense of it. So I actually burned through two highlighters reading this book. That was, that, that was a first. I often highlight with a ruler or, or underline with a ruler. Okay. okay. That's not, I, that's one of the few things that's like, I, I probably do not look like that sort of person, but I, after, I uh, after this is done, I'm going to give you the phone number for, uh, my, uh, my counselor, my therapist here in London. Uh, she's really good. <laughs> she can break me that in three seconds. That's a little weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's strange. It is strange. So Gebser, I, you know, it's interesting. I never heard of Gebser. I mean, I guess this shouldn't surprise me. There's lots of people I've never heard of, but this is, he's a 20th century German philosopher and linguist. And it's interesting. You quote this, you quote this passage. You said the present is defined by an increase in technological power inversely proportional to our sense of responsibility. If, if we do not overcome this crisis, it will overcome us. Either we will be disintegrated and dispersed or we must find a new way to come together. This is the, stuff of which dystopic serial dramas are made of, right? Yeah, we need to put some kind of like spooky music voiceover there. Yeah, Gebser, I mean, I hadn't heard of him either, but, uh, you know, that's because I'm not very edumacated. Um, But he was, I mean, for those who study postmodernism, he was kind of one of the architects of 
of postmodern thought. And, and I mean, he, he, he wrote in his life exclusively in German. So, you know, anything that sort of made it into my world, it had to first, you know, eventually be, be translated by the community of, of postmodernists. And, and he wrote uh, this book in the 1950s, right? And so this was very much, you know, German, uh, Germany after World War II and in the early years of the Cold War, where, you know, the fear of sort of nuclear holocaust was was an impending thing and and the the notion that we've we've developed technological powers uh, far beyond um our our ethics and our sense of responsibility for how do we how do we use this stuff safely was you know front and center in people's minds and and it's interesting you know as these days we're wrapped in these you know hand wringing debates about social media, uh, you know, fake news and algorithms and AI, it, it, it's kind of the same debate, right? We're, we're, we're similarly really, really struggling with, have we, have we unleashed technologies that we just can't cope with? And so are going to somehow, you know, tear, tear society apart. And so it was remarkable to read this book that was written, you know, I really think in the shadow of, um, of Hiroshima and of World War II, uh, but that speaks so piercingly to all the kind of deep questions that we're struggling with right now. Yeah, it's interesting. Neil Postman's book, Technopoly, which he just died this year, last year, I think, but he, he says, you know, basically tools and technology, you know, are created to serve the culture. And he calls it technopoly is when the culture serves the tools. Like the mm. tools drive the culture mm. rather than the the tools being employed to serve the culture. Mm. And I, I think that's, I mean, that has the sense of, of what you're talking about, right? That it gets at the thing like where, where, where the technology, it's like Heidegger says, you know, I love science, but I'm wary of technology at times because it, it, it becomes an animating force. Like it, you, you, the, the, you, you know, social media is a great example where it, it doesn't serve the culture. It creates and drives a culture itself. And I think that what, what uh, Gebser does is, you know, rather than talk about it in terms of technology, he talks about it in terms of sort of modes of consciousness. And so he says, like, right now, society is kind of in, in, in a hyper rational, in a, in a mental mode. And everything that we're doing is sort of serving our, our rationality at the expense of um, of of other other realities, uh, what he calls mythical truths, uh, magical truths, and I, I mean I think that you know he looked at uh, World War II, he looked at um, you know the U.S.'s arguments for dropping the bomb as you know rational arguments that nonetheless led us to some irrational place. And, and what he was saying is that it's not about sort of figuring out how to sort of take control of technology. Instead, it's about figuring out how to recover, uh, other aspects of our consciousness, the magical, the mythical, these other dimensions of reality, uh, and bring them into, uh, our rational world so that I, I guess going forward, sort of we, 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 you know, society is, is, is just a richer, more more integrated humanity that that just couldn't um couldn't imagine the sort of irrational things that were beginning to happen yeah yeah i i think that that's that's right and it, it's interesting because you talk about 
the how in the sort of post truth world, you know, that that you these kind of things like facts, if people say fake news, people they have it's almost it's almost magical, right? There are these incantations, mm. and you say, well, this is the fact, but then you know somebody dismisses it, and 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 there is a kind of a, an employing of of that magical kind of technique, and I think what you're arguing, right, is that the way to, or I've heard you argue here and elsewhere that the way you combat that is not by getting more rationalistic but by making a better incantation by <laughs> by, by, by actually by actually getting more mythical or more more into that aspect of reality that uh, to sort of have a counter incantation or to tell a better story and i think that you know it's this is all very mm, uncomfortable territory for the modern mind right i mean i mean the notion that that magic is somehow real or that that myths are somehow real and so as soon as we even hear anything that that you know has a whiff of that kind of that kind of argument um you know we're, we're very quick to i think to run away from it or or, or to shut it down and what was i, or I don't thought you what think was, we, or don't you think we actually maybe just don't take it seriously we we engage in it but don't take it seriously like hmm. like people hmm. were serious about other things and then you read the secret or or do some sort of new agey thin kind of practice or something. Right. And it's, just, and it, it's a stress relief or a thing, but, but we don't, right. we don't take it as seriously as pre-moderns would take myths and traditions. We just kind of flirt with it on the edges. And so it winds up being, you know, either flaky or a kind of uh, rigid kind of fundamentalism or something like that. Like it winds up being very thin. Yeah. And we get something from it, but we can't quite explain rationally, you know, how we do and we don't, we don't try. Right. It's sort of, you know, something that we've got. I, I, I think that's right. And, uh, but so what was so, I mean, what was really mind blowing about uh, Gebser's book was, you know, he, he argues, and I think pretty persuasively that, you know, whether we recognize it or not, sort of the magic and the mythical, these these earlier, older modes of consciousness uh, are still very much part of how we experience reality. And, you know, basically we've got a choice. We can either uh, refuse to recognize them, and so we are left with just the rational, which is sort of one-third of reality, or we can try to become more aware of how of of how and why these um these other ways of being in the world impact us and you know for me the 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 clearest examples he gives of how we work with this stuff without realizing it is um when you kind of dissect our language so so this guy Gebser he was also a linguist and so a lot of what he does is is show how look i mean we learned language we developed language uh at far earlier times when we looked at the world through magical a magical lens or when we looked at the world through a mythic lens and so we're still using in our everyday language um ways of seeing the world that were shaped back then uh maybe I'll just give give one example to make it uh just sort of to illustrate the point but you know, he says so you know in in um in the mythic um in sort of the the mythic moment um, you know, a metaphor for how we saw the world was a circle, right? There was, there was day and night. There was yin and yang. There was sun and moon. I mean, the, the universe seemed to speak to us in a kind of polarity and, and a balance. And that was sort of the, the governing metaphor for, um, for how we understood the world. And you can see this sort of duality, um, everywhere 
in in our language, at least in the English language. So you can take um, two words like uh, light and and lie, and you know conceptually these are sort of opposite words, right? Light, sort of you know brightness and, and clarity and truth, and a lie is conceptually you know sort of the the darkening of truth. So why is it that they have the same word root, the same semantic root, this lie, uh, and and his analysis, it's because that language goes back to an earlier time in human history when we understood everything in terms of balance and duality. Um, you know, why uh, clam means to shut like a clam uh, and clamor means to shout a loud noise. Uh, again, it's because so many of our concepts that we use to speak about the world evolved in a time when the only way to think about it seemed to be that sort of yin and yang were two sides of the same coin. So why do we drive in on the parkway and park in the driveway? <laughs> and I can't believe he didn't use that example. I was like, exactly. The you know? that one. You know, but it's, it's, uh, to me, those arguments are really persuasive. You know, language is, is this tool that we're always using to frame our experiences uh, most of the time without really thinking about how the tool itself sort of shapes the world that we live in. Yeah. This is like T.S. Eliot, you know, in the early 20th century when everybody's arguing about whether it's like logical positivism, people are arguing whether language's meaning is internal to, you know, language, the language itself or external to the world in its referential powers or just a language game internal to the grammar itself. And the, the famous sentence that they would use in these analytic philosophy classes was, you know, the present is this is this sentence meaningful? The present king of France is bald. And of course, you know, there is no king of France mm. right at the time. So so T.S. Eliot's response to this was, my God, there is a king in France and he's bald. His point there was Eve, like even illusions have a kind of reality, illusory reality. Hmm. So just just using that sentence as an example brings it, it reifies it and makes it into something. It, it, it's meant to be, you know, nonsensical on one level, and yet hmm. it, it 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 it's vivified by everybody using it. Hmm. Hmm. And we do that all the time, right? I mean, I think you know, take a take a religious example. Um, you know, we speak of God or whatever the creator force is in our lives. Uh, hearing our prayer, right? We don't, we don't, we don't talk about God seeing our prayer and, or, or reading our prayer. Uh, and, you know, it's because this notion that we have a relationship with a higher power, um, it, it far predates the development of, of, of like written language, right? And so, you know, even today, when we think about how we conceptualize that relationship. We're drawing upon a much earlier time when you know, we lived in this magical moment rather than a rational moment. And, and so all of that, I think, is, is just to say that when we fast forward to today and we're struggling with, you know, the, the, you know a lot of people I think are, str are struggling with a sense of kind of atomization, uh, you know, a sense of the sort of the busyness of life, of, 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 of the stress of never having enough time, um, of, of, of trying to restore a sense of balance with, you know, uh, headspace or whatever the app might be that, you know, we should, we kind of try to step back and, and recognize that, um, this at a deep level, what we're trying to do is to create 
sort of reconnect with um, just other ways of of seeing, of hearing, of of being uh, in the world that you know in in our sort of mental mode that is dominant today, uh, we we don't we don't accept as valid. Yeah, I, I think this is the appeal of somebody like Jordan Peterson right now. That I think the reason he is the rage right now, and people, you know, I think he's often misread as hmm. kind of more conservative than he is because he's such a nuanced thinker, and hmm. it, you know, it, it, it's easier to caricature than characterize. You know, when he's one of those kinds of people. But he wrote this great piece in the Times, uh, the London Times, on Sunday on Easter, and and he's someone I, I take as sort of like I think he probably believes in God, maybe not. I mean, he's he's very agnostic about. Uh, he likes Christianity in the Jungian sense. He he's, has a kind of ambivalent relationship with, you know, do, am I, would I subscribe to the, the Nicene Creed or anything? But he sees the, the cultural power in it. He says this in this piece. It's just so good. He says, um, to progress both psychologically and spiritually, you must eternally let go. You must abandon those things and people who impede your progress, however close they are to your heart. When you're wrong, when you miss the mark, you must let that part of you that is wrong die. Only then can you allow the new spirit within to spring to life. That new spirit, that's a living union of the terrible information contained in the error you committed with the structures you originally employed to frame the situation. It's a manifestation as well of the potential within you that has not yet been called forth by the previous travails of your life. Christ is symbolically the way and the truth of life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Embracing the process of voluntary death and rebirth that Christ embodies is synonymous with a kind of psychological development that comes from moving forward and upward despite life's horrors. Honest individual confrontation with the unknown catalyzes cultural revitalization. This is the psychological essence of Christianity, of Christian ritual and belief. We must identify with the part of ourselves that's always stretching beyond that we currently know, what we currently know, and has the faith to mm-hmm. let go of old certainties so that new patterns and being of being can be brought into place. Mm-hmm. I, I just think that is so brilliant. Like, you know, the, here's the guy, and he's sort of saying, look, wherever you are religiously, there's a reason why this the message of Easter has something compelling to it. And this this mm-hmm. this you know, he's getting, I think, at what you're talking about, he's getting this mm. kind of deep Jungian sort of mm. uh, mythical drama mm. that that is, you know, in these events and why they're ritualistically still significant and still have the power to compel. And that, to mm. me, is an example of of the kind of serious mythical thinking you're talking about. Mm. Like, I, I mean, I, myth is right. even a tough word because when people hear myth, they think something falls and you know Odin mm. and uh, and and mm. Thor and her because oh, mm. Thor is making a big comeback with the mm. Avengers. But I mean, <laughs> you know, but we're talking. I mean, but myths are these uh, these things that are eternally true. I mean, these 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 deep archetypical archetypical stories. Mm. And I think what you're identifying is our need for more of that. You know, it, it, our, our late modernity doesn't dispel the need for that. It actually makes makes it. I mean, this is Nietzsche's fear, right? Mm. With God, the God is dead kind mm. of thesis that. Hmm. He he fears that we won't have a, a spirituality to replace, you know, hmm. the, the the gap that hmm. that sort of the technological and scientific advance has hmm. left. Hmm. It, one of the in the history of consciousness that 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 Gebser writes about in his book, and one of the things that I found fascinating is he talks about how sort of each mode reaches a kind of fatigue, and one of the ways that we see that fatigue is when you know the 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 totems of it that were powerful lose their authority. You know, so in the magic mode, uh, spells, 
were, were powerful. Curses were real. But then eventually they degraded into sort of witchcraft and superstition. And, and, and finally, they were just superstitions, right? Uh, myth, you know, these powerful stories by which we sort of governed our lives, uh, devolved into, you know, just being interesting stories to tell to kids around a fireplace. And it's interesting that he frames it that way, because then I think about, well, if we are in sort of the, the next mental mode where, you know, facts are meant to be sort of the, 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 the powerful spell, you know, I cast a fact and, and everybody has to acknowledge the authority of the fact, you know, now we seem to have, you know, moved into a, a space of alternative facts, right? Where, where sort of facts can, can just roll off us and, and, and not be taken. So. Uh, as the authorities that uh, that they once were, the, and I agree completely with the uh, with the quote you gave about uh, about Easter, and maybe the one difference, uh, at least that Gebser would give, or maybe would disagree with, is that you know maybe it it it's so yes, it's about reintegrating, and that is the project we have today. But is it about discovering new parts of ourselves, or is it about sort of reconnecting with older parts of ourselves that that we have? Um, cut ourselves off from that, that our mental, uh, that the, the, the over, uh, dominance of the mental has, has cut us off from. And, you know, one of, one of the final sentences that he gives in the book, which, uh, which I thought was really deep was, you know, he said that our sole concern today must be with making manifest the future, which is imminent in ourselves. Right. And then that was really his testament to say that, you know, what we need, you know, whether it is to stave off thermonuclear war or whether it is to figure out, you know, how do we, how do we sort of come back together in a, in a fragmenting world in 2018, uh, is about a project of reintegrating things that, that are always, that are, that are already, uh, inside us and just need to, we need to find, I guess, because we are so rational, we need to find a kind of meta rational way to reopen ourselves to the significance of yeah a serious mythology and 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 a serious uh magic yeah i i completely agree i mean i i think it's interesting i had this guy from the national review on my give and take interview podcast uh david french great guy and he and michael gerson had both written stuff. Gerson had written something in the Atlantic about American evangelical sort of, um, this sin of sort of uncritical allegiance to Donald Trump and David French was responding, you know, sympathetically, but critically. And, and he and I were talking about this and I said, you know, what's interesting is evangelicals want to be so influential. And yet all this stuff is put into the culture war, which is turning people mm. away mm. from, uh, especially people that are millennials and younger Trying to be away so much, and and you're not thinking. I don't see many evangelical Protestants really thinking through the kinds of stuff you're talking about, like hmm. how to come to grips with science, how to come to grips with um with atomization and things that that actually would bring about a, a, a sort of you know redemptive influence in culture. So hmm. they're kind. Of, so there's this there. It's interesting because hmm. there's a kind of hyper rationalism rationalism to those hmm. evangelicals. It's all hmm. techniquey sort of. You know, let's try to get cultural influence and stuff. And I think it, 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 they're kind of asleep on the watch as some of the stuff you're talking about is, so is looming on the horizon. Well, one of the things that I think that, so while reading this long book and it's, I mean, I can't recommend it because it's just such a, a long and dense book, but there's, while I read it, I, 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 I began to appreciate, um, 
why it needed to be a long and dense book. Because what I discovered through the course of reading it is that, you know, if I stand in the rational now and try to sort of open to like the earlier mythic and the magical, it, it's very hard to do and even take myself seriously. I'm like, dude, that's just, you know, <laughs> but if you begin at the beginning and, and read about and reflect upon, you know, what was consciousness before we had a sense of ourselves as separate from nature? What was our awareness of time before we had a sense that time was measurable and divisible and, and work forward to the present? Then, you know, the, the magic mode feels uh, natural and, and, and the mythic feels like a natural extension of the magic. And then we can see how we got to the, the rational place we have today, but still somehow hold on to the memory of how we once were. And I, the best ways, uh, the best moments when I thought Gebser did this was in talking about how, how sort of the, the modern mind learned to conquer space and time. Uh, and so he talks, uh, in, in the European Renaissance, for example, about the, the critical importance of the development of, of linear perspective, which, uh, which Leonardo da Vinci perfected, you know, which was the ability to, 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 to represent space, uh, a three dimensional space in two dimensions. And before we had that capability, that very basic technology of, of sort of not just drawing, but drafting, um, it, it was impossible to say, you know, draw the human anatomy in a way that someone who looked at the picture could then do an operation on or, or, or draw how a tower was constructed in a way that somebody could then look at it and say, okay, I could build that too. But once we had that drafting skill, you know, then as Leonardo da Vinci proved, you know, we could take machines that he imagined uh, 500 years ago. And, and today we can still reproduce them uh, exactly as he intended them to work. Right. And so once we developed that, then sort of the whole of Western civilization went out and conquered space, right? We, we drew maps that were more accurate of how the world actually works. We drew maps inside our bodies. We drew maps of, of, of animals of, and, 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 and space was no longer something that, that controlled us. Instead, we controlled it. Right? But in doing that, we also um, separated ourselves from far earlier intuitions that space is all one piece and, and space is all connected. I mean, and, this is like Heidegger saying, right? Like basically there's a big difference between a Bavarian woodsman with an axe and his relationship to a tree and somebody in uh, you know South America working for a huge logging company with just this massive machine and they're just tearing down a forest. Right. I mean, your, your, your relationship to that tree, you're both cutting a tree down. Your relationship to that, to the, that tree is completely different. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, for us nowadays, you know, I guess the, the, the analogy is kind of like our, our calendars, right? I mean, we have, we have so in, in industrialized time, Right. I mean, we, 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 we lack time. We're short on time. Um, we, we, we try to fill time because empty time would is, is, is sort of wasted opportunity. Right. And, and all of that sort of reveals how we are, how we have taken our awareness so far away from, again, a, a much earlier intuition that, that time just is time is imminent and we are suffused with time. Right. Time is this infinite resource and context all around us, but, but we just don't think about it. We don't experience it. 
that way anymore, except for, you know, those moments like me last week in the, in the Austrian Alps where, you know, you just suddenly you just stop and you, you connect to some deeper intuition that I'm just a part of this. And, you know, the schedule and the notifications on my phone don't really matter. You know, there, there's something, there's some deeper relationship that, that, that is there. And I guess the question is, you know, can we, can we find a way to reintegrate that awareness into our lives and, and, and rebalance a bit so that we're not, um, we're not so, um, fragmented, you know, in, in, in our experience? Yeah. And that's sort of, it, you conclude the letter with, you know, three takeaways. A, like trust our magical and mythical impulses more. Uh, the, the first is second is time to get past gawking at the inconsistent, inconsistency and ignorance, uh, of the Donald Trumps of the world. Um, you know, that, that we need to understand them and integrate, you know, some of the truths they're get that they're getting at. You know, what are they appealing to? And lastly, again, this awareness that in history periods of general confusion and anxiety ultimately arrived at new clarity and certainty. So there we can go with some hope that things will get better. We can go with some hope that things can get better. And I think, I mean, it also, I, I think it's important for us to combat, you know, you know, the dominance of our, of our rational frame with, with just a bit of letting go and an appreciation that, you know, some of those, those little niggles and intuitions that we have that this matters, even if I can't explain why, uh, don't need to be explained, but rather we need to just dive deeper into those, those things that are just true because of some deeper intuition. And if we can, if we can focus on that and develop that, then, then we're going some way towards, uh, towards reintegrating. Yeah, G.K. Chesterton says that, you know, pre-modern man would have rather taken two truths in tension than exchange it for a half-truth. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's sort of living in that mysterious tension. Well, Chris, I look forward to more maps being made in the future and talking about them with you here. Map maker, map maker, make me, <laughs> make a, me map. a map. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.